The following is sponsored by the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, February 24th through the 26th in East Lansing and April 28th through the 30th in Bryn Mawr. Find information and registration online at alliancenet.org and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I'm a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here, as always, with my co-host and good friend, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Good to see you, Todd. Good to see you, Carl. Um, it's uh, It's been snowing and sleeting here today. It's a real January kind of day in the Shenandoah Valley. Are things sunny and warm in Western Pennsylvania? Oh, yes. It's it's Western Pennsylvania at the end of January. It's You could mistake it for Orlando, you know, if you were. <laughs> no, it has been snowing here. We have not had much snow this uh, winter, but we have had a couple of pulses go through the last uh, 24, 36 hours. Yeah. Hey, I'm hearing a rumor uh-huh. that you're back on Twitter. Well, I... I I would. I've routinely gotten. See, I'm already stuttering. I've routinely. I routinely get these links from people saying, "Oh, you've got to see this th- thread in in Twitter." And if you're not on Twitter for some reason, um, like every time I would try, it would kick me off after like ten seconds. And yeah, so, yeah. I, I went ahead and got on there so that I could follow oh, some man. of these things. And I might. I might throw in a comment here and there. All of that stuff about the liberating feeling of coming <laughs> off Twitter, you gave me. Funny thing is, you know, I, I never look at these Twitter threads and. Mm-hmm. My life just seems to go on like normal. I, it hasn't damaged my professional career or anything, I hear or you. my marriage or anything mm-hmm. like that. So. I hear you. And, and and indeed, I just the other day I was thinking, you know, at some point Carl's going to find out I'm back on Twitter yeah. and give me a hard time, and then I'm going to have to just oh. I'm going to have. But but I I mean I think the bottom line is, is I just don't know how to live um, in yeah. in in liberty. Well, I don't know how to live in freedom. Freedom freedom somehow uh, uh, disturbs me, and so I have to go back to the bondage of social media. And, and you, I know you're not a conspiracy theorist, but I consider you to be conspiracy theorist adjacent, if that makes sense. <laughs> I, I would be comfortable with that. I would okay. be comfortable with that. <laughs> well, it's a great pleasure today to have uh, an old friend of mine, uh, somebody actually who scarily I sort of stalked, I guess, in that he did his PhD at the University of Aberdeen, and then I did my PhD at the University of Aberdeen, and then he went to the East Coast of the United States, and I went to the East Coast uh, of the United States. Thankfully, uh, the stalking broke when he moved to Wales, because I really don't want to live in Wales. So I'm very <laughs> glad that uh, I was not doomed to that. But it is, of course, somebody who will be known to many of our listeners because of the many uh, great books, not least a wonderful systematic theology that he's written. It's the Reverend Dr. Robert Lethem, who is Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Union School of Theology in Bridgend in Wales, 
and the author of a brand new book entitled The Holy Spirit. Great to have you with us, Bob. Well, thanks very much. Great book. Uh, but I wonder if you could tell us uh, to begin with, you know, there are many, many books on the Holy Spirit out there. Uh, why this book now? What particular contribution do you think this new book makes at this particular moment in time? Well, I think in the first instance of books which have been written in recent years, and when I say recent, that covers uh, several decades, have largely been focused on areas of debate and controversy and taken out of the context, the wider context, theological and historical. Um, and so this one, I do deal, for example, in appendix with the a global Pentecostal movement, which of course encompasses a vast range of disparate sources from those who have some sympathy with Reformed theology on the one hand, or across to prosperity uh, gospel advocates on the other, and which is estimated at uh, having about one billion adherents altogether throughout the world. So that's an appendix. So I'm approaching anything of that nature in a much only after presenting, as far as I'm able, a holistic view of the Holy Spirit. Firstly, theologically, because the Holy Spirit is God, the one indivisible God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And uh, who work together inseparably in all their works, creation, providence, and grace. Um, no one goes, no one of the three goes off and does their own thing independently of the others. So, for example, um, you have hints, uh, traces of creation of the Trinity in Genesis 1 with creation. Uh, when the incarnation occurred, her father sent the son was conceived by the spirit baptism the voice from the he of heaven the father the spirit descends in the form of a dove rather like a dove uh, on the sun and so on and so forth the resurrection the ascension the cross everything you've got all three working together and so that i think in a theological sense is an absolute essential uh, for dealing with some of the voices which have been raised in recent years, both on the theological, le uh, academic level, and also as we find it in in the in the church as well. Uh, the other aspect of this is, which I think is probably, it's certainly distinctive. I think in Reformed and the broader evangelical sense, uh, is that I don't start with biblical exegesis. Um, I've come to the conclusion that if you if you start if you start off with your own exegesis, um, you're like you're, you're going to be spending all kinds of rather interesting um, uh, word patterns and so on, weird and wonderful connections. But you're doing it in a vacuum. Um, the history of theology ultimately is the history of biblical exegesis. The biblical exegesis of the whole church, East and West, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox. And consequently, to ignore it is to invite um, 
deviation. And the history is is littered with groups which uh, sat down to exegete the Bible by themselves, independently of what had gone before. And they almost always end up uh, in a mess. Jehovah's Witnesses was one, the Sicinians was the other. Um, We have a in this country, Carl will probably be aware of this, a range of training uh, programs which prepare people for ministry. It's on a sub-degree level, very sort of elementary. I'm not discounting their worth. But one of them, one of the most prominent of all, takes the position that you just uh, look at passages of the Bible by themselves and, and, um, and everything's uh, fine and clear. But I've had to counsel people who have come out of that particular course and are ministering, who believe that God has a body, mm-hmm. uh, that Jesus Christ was not God during his earthly ministry. I mean, the yeah. ideas, exact ideas which the Sicinians adopted yeah. in the 16th and 17th centuries. Yeah. So uh, I think it's one of the things I, I, I made at my ordination when the vows was, do you agree to submit to your brothers in the Lord? Now, that in the first instance applies to those with whom you are working and functioning in presbytery and so forth. But it also, I suggest, applies to our relation to the historic church. Um, we do not have the final answers. And each one of us doesn't either. And therefore, we need to listen to what others have said. So I think that's the thing. It, it's kind of builds on the view of tradition, which incidentally you find in the Westminster Assembly right. and amongst uh, the, the reformers as well. They were thoroughly versed in the past teaching of the church. They cited authorities to support their arguments. They uh, um, they did not, uh, but not self-consciously thinking to invent the, reinvent the wheel. Uh, and because of that, I, I, I go across the board with Roman Catholic, Orthodox, uh, all kinds of people. One very well-known Reformed scholar who I, again, will not name at this um, what few years years ago, over twenty years ago, uh, asked me if I said you were reading the Greek fathers. He said, and that was almost like an accusation. Came across as an accusation, mm. yeah. And also commented that in some degree of disquiet that I was quoting uh, Eve's Congar, the Roman Catholic uh, uh, theologian who wrote the probably the most important book on the Holy Spirit that was written last century. Huge affair. Yeah. Um, and my response, I didn't reply, but my response would be, you can't really write a history of music in the 20th century without mentioning Schoenberg, even though you might detest his uh, <laughs> development introduced. And certainly a th- book on theology without dealing with Bart. Um, it's it's also a narrowing, which I think what I observe in reformed circles that really you you can't really get very far unless you deal with theologians in the last century whose names began with the letter V. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. My father 
advised me years ago when I was only about 20 that your, he said your ministry would be more effective if you interact extensively with people with whom you do not necessarily agree. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's a, when I, when I yeah. received your book uh, several, several days back, of course, I, I turned first of all to the table of contents and, and I was encouraged by the fact that I, I, just in looking at the table of contents, I was given kind of a window into your theological method, which was encouraging to me. And you've already laid it out for us, which uh, you have yeah. to go um, to the early centuries of yeah. of the church. And for a lot of us who were raised in the Protestant tradition, particularly, um, you know, broader evangelicalism, um, that seems very odd and um counterintuitive to to, to evangelicals yeah. because church history began in the year 1517 <laughs> right right and in some cases for broader evangelicals it, it began in the mid 20th century yes, and, and so i was i was um i was encouraged by that i was also encouraged by the fact that um by the way that you approached uh the holy spirit in the old testament um i, I preached through the book of genesis several years ago and was so helped by those systematic theologians who dealt seriously with the idea that the Holy Spirit begins to make his appearance in Genesis. You know, some of the some of the more critical Old Testament scholars entirely dismissed that, which I think is a travesty um, uh, to not recognize the Holy Spirit's uh, uh, appearance in Genesis. Yeah, well, they're not actually giving a Christian exposition. <laughs> That's right. Speaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my my original wish for the systematic theology, which was soon uh, batted out of um, out of the court, uh, was church dogmatic. So now, obviously, I agree that it would not be a selling point, particularly in North America. <laughs> and some would think it was trying to copy Bart, mm -hmm. and the red lights would start flashing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, I, I agree that in, in that sense, the, the, the title which we had was probably better for those reasons, but it would have more clearly demonstrated the thing which, which I intended to come all, all, all along. Um, my very first book on work of Christ, I wanted the historical section to come first, mm. but um, the editors, uh, IVP, I was, it's my first book, so I didn't have the out really <laughs> to be able to say um no i don't i insist on it mm -hmm. but they they said how can you do this so surely the biblical section comes first yeah. well one of the things and carl and i've talked about this actually it, it's come up in conversations a number of times over the years which is um the necessity if we're going to do biblical exegesis and if we're going to preach christianly um we mm -hmm. have to have systematic theology um, yeah. systematic and historical theology has to be wedded to our exegesis or else we're not going to do the exegesis Christianly. Yeah. We're not going to read the Bible right. Christianly. Yeah. I think Je uh, Packer had a, a, an article in the first edition of Themelios along those lines, I think mm. was talking about the relation uh, hermeneutics, biblical exegesis and arguing as a kind of an interactive mm -hmm. or ought to be an interactive process between your theology and your exegesis, each uh, kind of feeding into each other right. and informing each other all the way all the way along. Clearly, obviously, your your theology has to be grounded in the Bible. That goes without saying; it's a supreme authority. 
But at the same time, your exegesis of the Bible, you ought to be very careful not to confuse it, of course, with what the Bible is actually saying. It may not necessarily be identical. Right. Yeah. What do you think is the, the number one uh, most common error today about the Holy Spirit, Bob? When, you know, when I was at college in the, uh, the mid-80s, it was, the, I suppose, the high tide of the not so much the, the prosperity charismatic gospel in the UK, but a very strong charismaticism. Uh, gifts of the Spirit were the, were the big thing. What do you think are the, the, the points today where there's most debate within the Christian, uh, Christian world? I don't know about on the popular level because, I'm, firstly, I'm not a networker, and therefore I don't really know what's going on. So you're not a friend of Todd on Twitter then, Bob? Is that what you're trying to <laughs> yeah, tell do, me? Do you not follow I've, Twitter? <laughs> I've never been on social media. <laughs> they did set up an account for me, so I'm told, on Twitter here in 2012, but I've, it's never been used. Good for you. So, yeah, I, I can't really uh, say, uh, and since I'm I'm getting on in years now, I, I just uh, let that slip by. <laughs> but in the theological arena, of course, um, you have to look at people like Frank McKeer and so on. The whole focus is more on eschatology and on the Holy Spirit as actually the goal, the whole goal of redemptive history and the work of redemption as, as coming to expression in Pentecost rather than at the death and resurrection of Christ. And I think they've moved away from this individualistic uh, focus on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit as exemplified in particular persons to the more cosmic dimension of renewal, renewal of the, of the whole cosmos centered in the, in the work of the Spirit. I, I deal with that in part in the book uh, when I give a kind of um, somewhat of a, a, a review of Makia in one or two places. Uh, and, and that seems to be the direction in which the, the kind of leaders, the academic leaders of the Pentecostal movement, such as they are, are moving. Now, the thing is, the whole, the whole movement, global Pentecostalism, is so vast. And it's not based upon doctrine, but upon experience. They lead, the, the, all their spokesmen say this. It's, it's nothing to do really with doctrine. It's to do with uh, experience, uh, keeping the flame going, whatever the flame actually happens to be. So it kind of fits in extremely well into the postmodern world, I think. Um, I've always thought that the evangelical, post-18th century evangelicalism is a kind of response to enlighten, the Enlightenment mm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. so it's a kind of religious romanticism in many yeah. ways, evangelicalism, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's inward-looking, right. yeah. Obviously, non-charismatic non Protestants, and especially Reformed Protestants, are oftentimes uh, dismissed as not really having um, any place for the Holy Spirit. And uh, you'll hear certain kinds of pejorative statements like, well, you know, the Reformed, you know, they believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Scriptures, you know, not the Holy Spirit. But, but this is not at all the case with uh, the, 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 the very beginnings of, of the Protestant Reformation. You go to Calvin, and, and he wrote copiously about the Holy yeah. Spirit, as did the other Reformers. 
Yeah. Well, in fact, if I, I when I wrote on the Westminster Assembly, there's a section there I point out that spirit is pervades the whole scenario. Uh, I think that what occasions that is the the extraordinary charismatic phenomena or what is claimed to be the revival mm-hmm. of such things, which I think I argue there cannot you cannot establish that at all. There's no right. way to prove that's the case. But because uh, the Reformed uh, generally have kept that at arm's length, it's perceived as being a an indifference to or an opposition to the Holy Spirit, which of course is sheer nonsense, because right. saying that you're, you're you're not Trinitarian. Right. Um, if you were putting together, Bob, uh, a series of sermons on the Holy Spirit, how would you go about doing that? I presume in the book you, you adopt very much a historical approach. I presume yeah. that would not be the way you would do it from the pulpit. How would you uh, work on the Holy Spirit from the pulpit in order to communicate the central elements of, a, of an appropriate pneumatology to the, the ordinary man or woman in the pew? Well, um, the ordinary man or woman in the pew is kind of is, uh, difficult to assess in many ways because, as you know, every congregation is different and exemplified in Revelation by the seven churches there, all within a fairly close range, and they're all completely different. So um, you have to know what you're, to whom you are preaching. Uh, but leaving that aside, I mean, there's a number of ways you can go about it. One could go about it in the way I did in the book, starting with um, in the biblical section. Yeah. Uh, alternatively, you could, uh, you could simply uh, uh, focus on how it appears in Paul or mm-hmm. Hebrews, not much on the spirit in Hebrews, right. but there is a what there is is quite important, mm-hmm. uh, very important, both relating to scripture and the cross, for example. Um, yeah, I mean, as with any subject, you can approach it in a whole variety of different ways, each of which are, uh, are um, certainly valid and effective. Um, and uh, some, when I was um, pastoring, too, it would depend on what else you're preaching on. For example, um, you wouldn't want to duplicate the same kind of sermon uh, on the Holy Spirit if you were doing some, uh, at the same time something s- relatively similar on something else. You mm-hmm. would, you, you would, um, if you were doing something which is perhaps more topical, you'd want to uh, adopt a more strictly exegetical approach. So uh, really, I, I'd have to answer that by saying much depends upon the context, much depends too upon the congregation, uh, and there's a whole variety of ways to do it, um, yeah. Good pastor answer. <laughs> I'm I'm currently uh, preaching through the Gospel of John, and of course, you know, the Gospel of John is one of oh. those places that where we have such uh, rich resources on on the 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 person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, I, I've I've already begun kind of leaping forward in the book um, as I'm going to be dealing with some of those passages uh, before too much longer and have, have already be, uh, been finding them uh, very, very helpful. But but John John's gospel is such a rich source of instruction on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you had to sum up briefly um, what Jesus wants us to know about the Holy Spirit in the gospel of John, how would you, is that a fair question to ask you how, how you would do that? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, of course, it does relate, of course, to especially to the church and the kingdom of God, of course, the uh, mysterious and sovereign way in which the spirit works is very clear there in his dealings with Nicodemus. Yeah. And that relates, of course, to a whole range, not just to um, Nicodemus's own status, but to the incarnation, to the ascension, uh, to the uh, work of regeneration and renewal. They're all there in John chapter 3. Uh, and in fact, you could argue really central to the whole of John's gospel is life. Mm-hmm. Um, and life in Christ is life, he says, right at the very beginning. And he writes precisely in order that his readers might have eternal life. And that occurs at each chapter, really right, right the way through it. It, it goes right the way through yeah. And um, it, it comes to expression, say, for example, you ask something not commonly taught today, it comes to expression, of course, in the Lord's Supper, mm. John chapter 6, uh, in fact, which was a focus of Cyril in his third letter to Nestorius, 11th anathema. Mm. If anyone does not believe that the flesh and blood of Christ is life-giving, let him be anathema. Mm. And in his explanation and defense of it, a couple of works he did, he says that um, if you deny this, you weaken the mysteries. Hmm. Namely, no, the Supper, the, the Eucharist. Uh, and so consequently, there is a point where probably the vast majority of those who self-styled evangelicals and a significant portion of Reformed take the view that the Lord's, that Lord's Supper is a memorial, yeah, basically symbolic, right, right. Um, which... John Knox was damned, utterly damned, that view. <laughs> and quite because it exposes a Christological problem mm. of the first order, either that there is no communion with the glorified flesh and blood of Christ, which is a form of deism, mm-hmm. or that the glorified flesh and blood of Christ is not life-giving. Wow, yeah. Those, those are very... Uh, very significant Christological problems. Yeah. And now John 6, of course, um, Christ, if we feed upon Christ and drink his blood, it can only be by the Holy Spirit who is life-giving. And it's it, it, we are united to Christ. We are, as Christ was transfigured on the mountain uh, in his preview of his, his humanity, glorified humanity, so will we be. When he appears, we will be like him. And that's work of the Spirit, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Yeah, that's helpful. And I, I appreciate that so much. And and as I've been beginning to work through the book, as I said, I'm, I already have an eye on, on ways that it's uh, going to be helping me um, as I preach on some key passages in the Gospel of John. One of the things that Carl and I love to do on this podcast is to speak to uh, faithful churchmen, theologians and pastors who for years have served uh, the church so well. And Robert Lethem is one of those men. Um, I I have thoroughly appreciated so many of his books over the years, uh, most recently his Systematic Theology, uh, which came out several years ago and has been on my, my desk in my stack ever since that I refer to still. Um, and now I was I was so pleased to see this new volume on the Holy Spirit from 
from PNR, and we would encourage you to uh, to get a copy for yourself. In fact, if you're one of our listeners and you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to uh, receive a free copy of uh, Professor Lethem's uh, wonderful new book, The Holy Spirit. And we would encourage you to uh, to go to that and do that. And, and while you're at our, our website, if you would like to consider making a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can certainly do that as well. But we're so glad you joined us. We're so thankful for our, our guest, Robert Lethem, who has uh, joined us. And Professor, I, I would encourage you when you're in Wilmington, um, having lived in Philadelphia for several years, I would encourage you, you can get a wonderful American cheeseburger at a place called the Charcoal Pit in Wilmington, Delaware. So um, uh, that that will make that will thoroughly in, inculturate you um, <laughs> into American culture. And I understand that there are top secret documents um, from the government stashed uh, in various places in Delaware as, <laughs> as well. But anyway, um, uh, Robert Lethem, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you very much. And to our guests, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to being with you next time on Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Luther's stirring words sparked the flames of Reformation more than 500 years ago and remain the heartbeat of the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Join Kevin DeYoung, Richard Phillips, Jeffrey Thomas, and others for our 50th conference, February 24th through the 26th in East Lansing and April 28th through the 30th in Bryn Mawr. As the PCRT is excited to present, Here We Stand, the Five Solas of the Reformation. Conference founder, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, considered the Reformation solas to be the tonic for the ailing church of our time. Discover once again how God uses these great doctrines to give life to His church as you enjoy rich fellowship and stirring worship among friends. The Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology in Michigan, February 24th through the 26th and April 28th through the 30th in Pennsylvania. Find information and registration online at AllianceNet.org.